0: But I think a discussion has to begin from acknowledgement that there is no left in the US and hasn't been for quite some time. Now, I realize that in saying that, what I'm actually stipulating is that a left is what you and I grew up understanding a left to be. But through a process of semantic inflation and infiltration over the last four decades, what people generally understand to be a left has been disconnected from political economy and linked to performances of identity, basically. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
1: In the last three installments of this podcast, I gave you a sense of why it is so hard to build ethnically and religiously diverse democracies, of why the great experiment of building ethnically and religiously diverse democracies that actually treat the members as true equals is such a difficult challenge. For the next weeks, I want to start to talk about the vision of a society in which people from every demographic group would actually be excited to live in. And one core part of that vision, of course, is an answer to the question, of how we should regulate the coexistence between the state, between different ethnic and religious groups, and between individuals. Do philosophical liberals have the right answer in setting the basic rules of such a society? Or do communitarians who take groups as the basic unit of society, who think of it as a kind of association of associations, have it right? Well, the way I think about this is that a decent democratic state has to grant its citizens a double freedom. It has to give them freedom from an oppressive state and the tyranny of the majority. It has to ensure that you can criticize the president or prime minister without being worried about going to jail. It has to ensure that an unpopular religious group can freely engage in forms of worship without some kind of mob coming to its door to burn down its house of worship. And of course, it has to ensure, as we were tragically reminded last weekend in Buffalo, the physical safety of members of ethnic minorities against the hatred of different groups. But that is not all, because alongside these protections against the state or against people who come from different groups, we also need to grant citizens a second kind of freedom, a freedom against what, Danas Anna and James Robinson call the cage of norms. A lot of the time, the restrictions on our lives don't come from the outside, but rather from our own parents and aunties and uncles and neighbors, so from our own priests or imams or rabbis. And so the second liberty that we need to grant citizens is that they should be able to leave the communities in which they grew up if they so choose to strike out on their own and lead a self-determined life that their own communities may disapprove of. So what this gets us to is a philosophical liberalism which takes the dignity of groups seriously. Communitarians cannot explain why we don't just need protections from the state, but also need the state to intervene when our own groups start to oppress us by thinking of society as an association of associations, they cannot adequately ensure that everybody can escape the cage of norms if they need. At the same time, it's important for liberals to be thoughtful in how we talk about groups. Where the communitarian critique of certain forms of liberalism gets it right is when it says that we are not, most of us, individuals who have no belonging to some cultural or religious group, that we completely reinvent ourselves at the age of 18, but we're not embedded in networks of mutual obligation. Rightly understood, liberalism is perfectly aware of that. That is why some of the most important individual freedoms we grant people are the freedom to worship, the freedom of assembly, the freedoms we need to determine which groups we want to remain a part of. So, for a true philosophical liberal, cultural and religious groups are worthy of respect. We recognize what importance they play in the role in the lives of so many people. But they are only worthy of respect because, and insofar as they don't rely on coercion to keep the members in line. Many people will always remain a member of a group into which they were born, in which they grew up, but some will choose to strike out on their own to leave those groups and to live a very different kind of life from their parents. And both of those things need to be possible in a truly democratic society, in a philosophically liberal society, in a society that can keep the peace between these different ethnic and religious groups. My guest today is Adolf Reed. He is a professor emeritus at UPenn, the University of Pennsylvania, and a very prominent African-American political theorist. A Marxist who believes in the importance of class analysis, he has been very skeptical of what he calls race essentialism. The tendency to ascribe to race things that are more clearly explained by class. His latest book is The South, Jim Crow, and its Afterlives. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Adolf Reed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm really excited for this conversation. I think you're such an important voice in the debate at the moment. I want to take a step back to start the conversation and get your sense of how the sort of American mainstream view about race in intellectual circles has changed over the course of your lifetime?
0: Oh, that's an interesting one. I think it's changed and not changed, which I think is kind of you know the history of the race idea since its inception, basically. And I think that that sense of change and continuity partly maps onto the extent to which the commitment uh, to see race is more of an ontological one than it is an intellectual one.
1: I think ontological is a word that I more or less understood in my seventh year of grad school, but I'm still sometimes unsure. Can you explain for listeners what you mean by that distinction?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think belief in race is ontological in the sense that people are committed in an a priori way to a view that the world, or that there are the sub-specific uh, human classifications or subpopulations that, that exist in nature, basically. And for less. last 20 years plus of my career, I taught a grad seminar on 20th century race theory. And one of the experiences that grad students had commonly was by the fourth or fifth week that they got really depressed because they came into the course anticipating something closer to a Whiggish account, right? Such that, you know, there was a benighted past when people believed that races were fundamentally real human divisions and then didn't. And what they learned is that the fundamental commitment doesn't really go away, that what struggles between egalitarian and determinist interests can produce is victories against a particular metaphor of fundamental difference, biology, culture, or I mean, whatever. But because the commitment is ultimately like an ideological one, and that's what I mean in this sense by an ontological one, or the tendency to believe that such differences are real in the sense that they exist in nature doesn't really get defeated. And that's kind of depressing until you just take it as a fact of life and then figure out that this is a struggle that will go on because it's not even specifically just a struggle against a discourse of naturalized hierarchy like race, but there are a bunch of others. Gender is one. Feeble-mindedness was one during the high period of the eugenics era. And that's one reason I like to teach that too, because that was a period partly because it was also the period in which the race idea, broadly construed, was more broadly held and more firmly entrenched than at any point in history of the species, either prior to that or since. And for that reason, you can see the race idea lapping increasingly over the boundaries of the sort of phenotypic food groups that have made up the race idea since like the mid-19th century. So... To go back to your question, I'm sorry, that's what my grandmother would have called going all around Robin Hood's barn to give an answer. And I think it's changed from the end of World War II, or really earlier, I guess the combination of the discovery of the Nazi death camps, and a shift from biology to culture as a foundation for explaining differences in human populations that began in the 20s and 30s. You know, the emergence of the notion of cultural pluralism, which basically turns race into culture from biology. And I can say more about that later if you'd like. But so from the end of World War II forward, in respectable American intellectual life, explicitly racialist thinking has become increasingly negatively sanctioned, or was increasingly likely to be sanctioned negatively. Things start turning around again in a funny way in the late 60s with the proliferation like of ethnic pluralism again as a way of talking about populations and i mean i've argued along with my colleague walter ben michaels and others as well and actually the rogers brubaker probably I mean, makes a version of this argument too but a little more cautiously that race ethnos or nation are like all different words for the same thing basically right so that ambiguity was always there and even as racial liberalism spread and became the dominant understanding right with the classic moment being. The publication of Carlton Kuhn's opus, you know, The Origin of Races, in 1962, Kuhn was a very prominent physical anthropologist. You know, he was chair of the Penn Anthro Department for many, many years, and a barely closeted active segregationist, and a believer in polygenesis, which is the idea that different racial groups evolved to homo sapiens from different ancestral forms. When Kuhn published the summation of his life's work, he was roundly attacked by the liberals in the physanthro world. And you can take that as kind of a marker of the completion of the shift.
1: But to go back to what you were saying a moment ago, I'm trying to follow the, arc of the argument. And I guess what he's saying is that there's an ideological commitment to thinking of race as fundamental. And then it takes these different forms, these different ideological ways it sort of expresses itself in different moments. And so that was sort of the defeat of the most obvious classic form of thinking of race as fundamental, which is biological, which had really been quite dominant in American intellectual circles in the early 20th century, for example. And then I guess this was the moment when successfully the pushback against that notion had succeeded. But then I guess your argument implies that the ideological commitment to race is going to drive, is going to lead to the appearance of a different kind of ontological form in which people try to express those racial differences or try to uh, reassert the importance of race. So how does that happen in the next phase?
0: Right. Well, yeah, the modification I would make is that it may not even be so much a commitment to the idea of race as a commitment to the idea of naturalized hierarchies, that people are where they seem to be in the world because that's where they're, um, they're supposed to be. So like in that sense, there's something kind of futile about it even. So what happens after World War II, in particular, at least in the U.S. uh, and in the social sciences, the work, arguably, that the race idea had done previously to root the understandings of natural human difference someplace other than political economy, because from my perspective, that's always the goal, right, is to root it someplace other than political economy, and as a manifestation of contemporary class hierarchies, kind of moves to culture. And we see this In the 50s, like in the U.S., first in the emergence of the sort of culture of poverty idea, but then even in the invention or the reinvention of economic inequality as poverty. So poverty, like if you read back to the late 50s and early 60s, and even the work of people who are on sort of my side politically, like Michael Harrington, there's a powerful inclination to provide culturalist accounts of why people are poor. And insofar as you know, culturalism or culture lies, or is understood to lie, you know, outside political economy, then you've got like another version of an essentialist uh, argument. And then you know, by the late '60s, with Black Power and the emergence of the Chicano movement and the Puerto Rican movement for social justice, as those migrate you know, into discourses that are based on culture and nationality, even with the connections to more or less uh, the romantic connections to third world, you know, anti-colonial insurgencies. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. But <laughs> did the same kind of work, right? So by the 80s or like into the 80s, certainly or during and by the end of the Clinton administration, class and political economy have disappeared from American political discourse or at least policy-oriented discourse almost entirely. And culture is what there is left for us to understand, or the discourse that's available for us to understand existing inequalities. See, I think that something really big happens or has happened since 2015, or certainly after the Great Crash. And as levels of economic inequality in the U.S. have become greater, as the society has become more polarized economically since then, the two main languages of response are from the right. What we can summarize as a reactionary nationalism, basically.
1: So that's what I would often talk about in terms of authoritarian populism, but those terms competition, right? we talk about Donald Trump and so on.
0: Right, exactly, and yes, I know you do, and I take that point. I think it's correct. I mean, as a rule, I tend to shy away from identifying that as populist because corporate Democrats what have used the label to apply to Bernie Sanders as well as to Trump. And this is also the way that consensualist academics in the American Academy, again, in the post-war era, tended to talk about uh, populist insurgency at the end of the 19th century. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing there. It's a side conversation, I suppose, but it's
1: worth having for a second. The term populist, first of all, it's just in English has the really unfortunate happenstance that it refers to two distinct conceptual thing. First is the populist party of the late 19th and early 20th century. And the second is the sort of a long-standing political science concept about the way in which certain politicians invoke a rhetoric of standing for the whole of the people and make restrictions on the power impossible, right? I mean, the second is even the people who have the concept in mind that I usually have in mind when I talk about populist, unless it's a concept, you know, often just misapply it in the way that people often misapply the term fascist. There's all kinds of political terms that have negative valence, and then obviously that often invites the temptation of people to just use it in an inappropriate way for people they don't like, right? So I think the concept of populism is important, an important one, but I recognize that it's one that's fraught with a lot of potential for intellectual error or for political instrumentalization.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. And by the way, I'm with you 100% on that. I understand what you write about as populists when you write about it. And I understand what Michael Lind writes about his when He writes about it. And in a way, like the one punchline is that people should read more and read more carefully, right? Because words don't have intrinsic meaning. So that's a lapse into pedantry. But yeah, that's on the one side. And then on the other side is disparitarianism as a standard of injustice. And as you know, I'm sure that this is a notion I've been on the warpath against for quite some time because there's nothing... Transformative about correcting or addressing disparities by ascriptive or based on ascriptive hierarchy or ideas of ascriptive difference, and from that perspective, sure. Like if you're going to have even in a sort of half baked Keynesian moment like in American in political history, addressing disparities as your disparate outcomes seem like a reasonable and a small d. De- I mean, democratic thing to do it seemed less and less so as that has displaced completely efforts to reduce economic inequality and as the society has become more and more polarized because with respect to wealth and income because the model there is that the society could be one in which one percent of the population controls 95 percent of the resources and it would be just so long as 12 percent of the one percent were black and 14 percent were hispanic or half women or whatever And that kind of reminds me, like I saw Alistair McIntyre give a talk at Yale back in the 80s when he was moving back from Lenin to Rome. And someone asked him a question about his criteria for determining that a society is democratic. And his response was that, well, you can consider it democratic if anyone outside the executive elite is able to participate in making pertinent political decisions. And whoever asked him the question, they responded by saying, well, by that standard, South Africa would be a democracy. And he said, well, yes, it would be, because some people are able to participate. Now, if you read the history of National Socialism, like you'll understand that, well, Hitler was at the top, but there were other people who were able to participate in some way or another. So everything is a democracy. Right, right, right.
1: <laughs> well, there's, there's a political science line, but nothing is a democracy, you know, which is more plausible, I think. Than right, well, things.
0: yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly.
1: <laughs> so the sort of second incarnation of this ideological commitment to race is in this sort of cultural form. And you're starting to talk about the sort of ways in which that leads, on the one side, to the rise of something like Trump, and on the other side, to the rise of something like An identity-focused modern left or something like that. This, to me, is something that I keep coming back to, not just because I do think it's an important development in the world and not just because it affects a lot of the people I know and a lot of the institutions I live in, but because it's intellectually, I think, the hardest to understand, you know. The far right rediscovers that they think of certain groups as inferior. That's worrying and it's shocking and it's important to fight against it, but there's nothing intellectually interesting or surprising about that. To me, as somebody who grew up with communist grandparents, as a member of the youth movement of the Social Democratic Party in Germany, you know, what it was to be on the left was to be a kind of universalist, which didn't deny the recognition of colonial injustices, didn't deny the recognition of the existence of racism in the midst of our society, but which always posited that the goal was something like workers of the world unite. The goal was something like, in the end, we should recognize that these differences should be overcome and are not as important as the things that humans share. How is it that this has ceased to be the dominant intellectual mode of the left? How is it that a sort of proud embrace of the idea that somebody being white or Latino or black is really the most important thing about them or one of the absolutely fundamental things about them, and that, in fact, society would be better if people were
0: more aware
1: of these ethnic differences? How does that happen on the left?
0: Well, that's a very good question, and I'll start by expressing how simpatico we are about this, like my father, at a minimum, moved in the orbit of the Communist Party during my youth, and my mother was a Catholic worker, kind of Catholic. So, I grew up the way you grew up, and I grew up to appreciate the Enlightenment, and not least because I suffered through 12 years of Catholic school, (laughs) by contrast. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, like, I've watched this happen over the last 40 years, and I mean, that simple answer or response is more like a quip, is that it happened because it appealed to the sensibilities of the ruling class. So I guess I'd start by saying, and maybe I would take this transition that you described as evidence, but I think a discussion has to begin from acknowledgement that there is no left in the U.S. and hasn't been for quite some time. Now, I realize that in saying that What I'm actually stipulating is that a left is what you and I grew up understanding a left to be. But through a process of semantic inflation and infiltration, right, like over the last four decades, what people generally understand to be a left has been disconnected from political economy and linked to performances of identity, basically. I think that the dialectical connection here is the retreat of a working class politics and the retreat of a working class left, which you can trace back to the purging of the AFL-CIO at the World War II, you know, what the new left was and became, and the extent to which it actually defined itself against a social democratic politics. I mean, for instance, and pardon the parenthetical, but part of the debate over how to shape the war on poverty in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations was understood by participants, or at least those who understood themselves to be aligned with the new left, as a debate between ossified, bureaucratic, mechanistic, one-size-fits-all programs of a macroeconomic intervention versus the emerging fascination with pursuit of authenticity. And the Ford Foundation was in the middle of this, right? And you can see, like going through the debates and the documents, how The non-economic position came to be seen as the progressive one, where the argument made by people like Walter Ruther from the CIO, well, at that point, UAW, and A. Philip Randolph and others, that basically people were poor because they didn't have jobs that were good enough and didn't have money. So therefore, the way to fight poverty is through creating opportunities for meaningful employment for people. And that got castigated as the right-wing position. So explain the debate to me because I'm
1: not as familiar with it. So the position that you're talking about is basically to say, look, the way to overcome poverty is to make sure that people who are poor, you know, with all of the cultural and so on consequences it does have, get access to good jobs. And once they're back to good jobs, they're going to be able to get out of poverty and also some of the cultural things we might be worried about or people at the time were worried about, like, say single mothers or whatever, are going to be overcome. And that became the right position. What became the left-wing position? Or what was the other pole in that debate?
0: The other pole was, and here's a sleight of hand, that people were poor because they lacked a sense of personal capacity. So this was the foundation of the community mobilization approach to finding poverty. So the idea is that you organize the poor to act on their own behalf, and somehow magically that would turn into the end of poverty. And nobody or hardly anyone recognized that at the time in the terms in which I'm describing it now. But in effect, the psychologistic understanding of the roots of poverty is what became part of the basis of, or at least it reflected what was becoming part of the basis of the new left's understanding of radicalism. And I can't tell you how many frustrating meetings I attended when I was in college of people thinking the point of politics was to express themselves and to realize their deeper identities and aspirations. So that was part of, or that's one tributary that flowed into this great river that we're talking about today. And then in the mid to late 80s in the academy in particular, just as the newer disciplines of Black studies and feminist studies, etc., that had emerged with an aura of Ursat's politics about them, right? or of extramural political meaning about them. Just as they were becoming institutionalized as solidly respected fields of study in elite academy, they were under internal pressure, or scholars in those fields were under internal pressure themselves, to combine what we might call the social service justifications for their existence with demonstrations of high intellectuality. So, at that moment, we get another infusion of French theory, And we also get a particular kind of American appropriation of cultural studies on a British model. And they come together, like in a way, that reinforces identitarianism. And my colleague then and friend, James Scott, and his work on the hidden transcripts of the oppressed gets appropriated by people in those disciplines to make claims about how the truth of, you know, women, blacks, Hispanics, like whatever can never be known unless you do the deep, almost Straussian, in fact, I compared it to Straussianism in a book, sort of mystified understanding of deep, hidden meanings that can only be reached through an elaborate and an esoteric hermeneutic, which also carries with it a race reductionist and identitarian component in the sense, like at least a substantive argument that's packed into that that only the Black woman can really get access to the esoteric interpretation of the state of the Black woman. You can see how this becomes also a career imperative. And then you stir into the mix the emergence of the notion of the public intellectual at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. And like to this, my old friend and comrade Russell Jacoby was an unintended contributor, because he invented the notion. But then It gets taken up in the identitarian discourses of these scholars, and then it goes back and forth between the university.
1: That's fascinating. I'd never thought of the idea of what some people call situated knowledge, or what often today is called standpoint epistemology, as having one of its roots in the work of James Scott, whom I also greatly admire. Right, yeah, me too. But I invite listeners to go back to, you know, he's now, I believe, in his 80s. And he has the modest endeavor in his eighties not just to return to speaking Burmese at a very high level, uh, which was something he started doing in his twenties, but to write a first-person plural history of the Ayagadi River. Oh my God! Huh. So in the we form, spanning you know four thousand or five thousand years. Wow! When I ended that conversation, I thought. My only hope in life is that when I'm in my 80s, I have the intellectual enthusiasm and the hell to be excited about an intellectual project like that. But you use the term race reductionism, which is one of the phrases that you're well known for. What is race reductionism and why should we be worried about race reductions? Right. Well, it's funny. I give my son credit for the term. Another life ambition, by the way, is to
0: have a child with whom I has as fruitful intellectual collaboration <laughs> as you <human> have. <laughs> well, it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> and I'm pleased to have him as a colleague and also as a son. But on one level, right, like on a rhetorical level, it's obviously a reversal of the class reductionism charge that people levy at the likes of us. But there's an organic foundation for the term. I just completed like an essay about this issue last night. So if you start out from the assumption that the Black experience in North America has been uniformly defined by racism, white supremacy, and even like a sort of demon theory of a transcendent anti-Blackness that has animated the history of the entire world, what that means is that you're reducing everything that has to do with Black Americans' experience to their racial classification. And we see that now, for instance, this just popped into my head because I quoted it, but shortly after the 2016 presidential campaign, or maybe it was a little later, it might have been you know, 2018, the MSNBC host, who I just described as a tribune of neoliberal anti-racism, Joanne Reed, in an interview with Trevor Noah on uh, The Daily Show, just declared that Black people don't have an interest in stuff like free public higher education or Medicare for all, right? or a 15 dollars an hour wage, or employment security, or what access to a secure and dignified retirement. You know, what Black people want is a reckoning, as they call it, and to have the racial conversation. And that can only work, first of all, if others are at all prepared to accept her as a ventriloquist to 46 million Black people, right? But also, if people are prepared to accept, including her, by the way, the premise that every other feature of the lives of any Black person is subordinate to their racial classification and to an issue agenda that purportedly can be read out from the racial classification. That seems like a textbook explanation of race reductionism to me. And I think that's a mindset that dominates current identity politics.
1: So what would a healthy treatment of race look like in contemporary American life? You know, I'm struck by the fact that in the United States, even in terms of descriptive statistics, people often don't control for class. No, that's right. Really stupid example, OKCupid, the dating site, which, you know, once upon a time was dominant, now I think it's very small, you know, had this blog and they showed the percentage of respondents that members of various demographic groups got and among women, Black women got the fewest responses. And that was read as straightforwardly an expression of racism, when presumably a lot of what's going on in these dating sites, all kinds of subtle class clues. And one of the things that drove that is that probably statistically the average Black user was less affluent because the average African American in the United States is still less affluent, right? Now, on the other hand, I was just in France for a while, and there... I often get the response when I talk about any kind of form of racial injustice or something like that of, well, it's just about class. And I agree that class plays a large element in it, but I wouldn't want to deny that on top of class, there are also forms of racial discrimination, there are also forms of prejudices. There's some reasonably convincing studies where people send in CVs with different names, for example, and it turns out names that demarc a minority group in most countries get fewer invitations to interview in the names that have the locally dominant, you know, what are called Thomas Smith or Jean-Francois, whatever, right? So how do we talk about this in a subtle way, which avoids what I do think often happens in the States, which is race reductionism, but also what I think in some of the other contexts, like in France, can happen, reductionism or or denial
0: of the importance of race? Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And look, like in addition to stuff like the Cupid site, most medical and public health of the research doesn't collect data by class. So race is a proxy and the researchers often use race as a proxy for class, but which does the work that it does. Well, yeah, I mean, here's how I've come to think about you know, the relation. And frankly... But I came into politics in the mid-1960s and was part of sections of the left from the end of the 60s forward that spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to deal with the so-called race-class dichotomy, which is an issue going back in the American left to before the First World War. And here's what I've come to, that race is best understood as a species of a genus of ideologies of ascriptive hierarchy that function in class societies but we'll just take capitalism for the moment to equilibrate the hierarchy or to sustain the hierarchy by reading it into nature right so in the feudal era peasants were peasants because they were supposed to be peasants or god made them peasants or whatever and for much of the history of the west the women were subordinate because they were by nature subordinate and so forth and so on and race does that work and has always done that work and race evolved to do that work and I mean, moreover Race in particular is a notion that, given its own natural history as an ideology, is inseparable. Well, I wouldn't say it's inseparable. It emerged within and along with and functional to, and I don't mean to sound so much like a functionalist, this is sort of a shorthand, but I'm talking about evolution over a long, long time, but functional to capitalist class processes, right? I mean, going back to colonial Virginia. So, my colleague Barbara Fields for a number of years, did an exercise for Columbia undergrads. And she would ask the students to show hands if they were sitting to somebody of the same race or of a different race, but whichever, I always get it confused. And then she would ask them to show hands if they were sitting next to someone who looked exactly like themselves. And her point was, Homo sapiens vary along more dimensions than you can shake a stick at, but only some of them become the basis for race ideology. And it just so happened that those that became the basis for race ideology were the populations that needed to be contained. So from that perspective, to me, the race versus class debate is misformulated. And the issue would be more like trying to investigate the work that race and comparable ideologies, because I do see race as one point on an indifference curve of discourses of ascriptive difference. And what that means, among other things, by the way, is that I blanch at constructs like race is our original sin, it's a national disease, and all that kind of stuff. Because, yes, American racism has a particular horror, but i tell you, and this is another anecdote, so I realize I'm going all around before I get to the end of the sentence. This past summer, I saw a documentary on the Vietnamese-American population in the city of New Orleans, and it was part of you know, the annual film festival. And while one of my nieces is, in fact, featured... Right. In the documentary. Right. But before the film started, there was a generic short video of what I understand now is called the land acknowledgement. And it was like a video of the Mississippi River and a boat in it. But the voiceover is giving credit to the multiple Native American populations who had lived in the area going back to before uh, the 18th century. The African slaves, other blacks, this and the other. And I mentioned this to my son the next morning, and he asked a question that was on my mind when I watched this thing, which was, was there any reference to the 20,000 plus Irish immigrants who died digging the New Basin Canal in the city in the 1830s? And of course, there was none, right? Because, you know, for obvious reasons. So my point about that is that racism is a particular horror, right? There's no question about that, right? And this is, uh, I think, another problem. And I realize this is yet another digression off the previous two. But this is another thing that's always disturbed me about those people who want to insist that the Holocaust was sacrosanct as a sweet, generous form of oppression. Because that just seems to me to let it off the hook. Because, in fact, in a, both cases, that uh, racism and New World anti-Black racism or like colonial racism are, first of all, species of the same genus. And there are other forms of oppression and exploitation that, are, that if it's going to be a discussion of what deserves moral opprobrium, then I think they all do like in an equal way. And I think that the sanctimonious discourse about the singularity of the racism kind of gets in the way both of understanding what it was, how it emerged, and what the links are between then and now. And one last point about that, I want to give props to a legal historian. Robert Steinfeld, who's done really great work on the origins of the idea of free labor, mainly in the U.S. and the U.K. And one of the points he makes early on is that despite the moralistic discourse, when you look historically, slavery in the New World is not the anomaly that needs to be explained, right? I mean, into the 19th century, the vast majority of all labor had been bound in some way or another. The thing that needs to be explained is the emergence of the modern idea of free labor in the 19th century. So, I don't know. Like I think I've gone all the way around Robin Hood's barn again. But but did I, glancingly at least, let we I mean, respond to the question you posed?
1: No, absolutely.
0: I think that's incredibly helpful.
1: There's a million details I would love to double-click on. But I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about your latest book as well, Just is about one particular form that racial discrimination took in the United States, how would you describe the nature of Jim Crow and how does that differ from what, you know, our
0: listeners may assume? Mm, Okay. To me, first of all, it was historically specific. I've often said to my classes that all four of my grandparents were sentient beings, right? They'd fully become what I'm, Homo sapiens, and probably a couple of them were adults already by the time that the system was consolidated in the years around the First World War. And its back was broken by the time I was 18 years old. So that's not much more than a 60-year system. And it was you know, not any fun for those 60 years, but it began and it ended. And I think the system emerged as a response to a couple of different problems that were experienced by the Southern political and economic dominant class, right, merchant planter capitalist class. One of the problems, you know, was the objective problem of accumulation, right? Just because of the nature of the Southern economy toward uh, the end of the 19th century. What's the problem of accumulation? Oh, sorry. Well, around 1880, there was a long-term depression in cotton economy. And planters in particular had been cash-strapped since the treasonous insurrection of 1861, 1865, and were increasingly in hock to Northern financiers. So that's kind of the foundation for one node in the lost cause of an account that sort of sees the tattered South as being a colonial subject of the North. So there was that issue. But since emancipation, planters had been, you know, it seemed to me in the retrospect, maybe unnaturally concerned about the possibilities of cross-racial alliance between For working-class whites and Black freedmen, especially after the 15th Amendment, enfranchised Black men. But there were enough examples of that insurgent alliance being effective right between 1868 and 1890 to justify the fear. And then in the early 1890s, Blacks and whites aligned in the populist movement. And in 1892 and again in 1896, the Republican Fusion Alliance won statewide office, like in North Carolina, and was re-elected in 1896. After the ruling class, just to call the dog by its right name, succeeded in suppressing the populist insurgency, there was a concerted move to reassert dominant class power across the board. The first step of which was disfranchisement. And more than you know, 90% of blacks were disfranchised. And depending on which state you were in, up to a quarter to a third of whites. I mean, uh, what well, a number that sticks out in my mind is that in the 1896 presidential election, more than 100,000 blacks voted in the state of Louisiana. In the 1904 election, fewer than 1,000 voted, right? Disfranchisement then like became the pretext for imposition of a political, economic, social, and cultural order based explicitly uncodified white supremacy. And that's what the Jim Crow Order was. And so I take it that part of the project of this book is
1: revisionary in certain ways, that you want to change how we think about what life under Jim Crow was like or what the nature of Jim Crow was. So Tell us more about what Jim meant for primarily its victims
0: and how
1: you think we misunderstand the nature of it at times.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'll try. So, look, as is normally the case, people who are on uh, the victimized end of an oppressive system, to some extent, will experience it as everyday life, right? As the natural order of things. And you make adaptations, right? You find ways to define dignity or security or whatever. So, I mean, there's that. So one facet of the sort of commonsensical understanding to correct, as it were, is that it wasn't like what my son often refers to as white people's permanent sadism camp, right? It was also an order that was imposed on everyone, on whites as well as Blacks. And everyone had to figure out ways, especially in the domains of life that weren't explicitly regulated by statute about how to accommodate themselves to it. It was, as oppressive systems typically are if they survive for any length of time, malleable and evolving internally on its own. But frankly, the first order of correction for me is that most Americans, even most students, tend to think of that period in American history, or for that matter, any other, As like a blur of the unbroken bad old days or bad old timey times, where slavery and like Jim Crow are like indistinguishable; they're the same thing. And all of a sudden, something happened, or I mean, didn't happen. And I've had back and forth with people about this, like on podcasts too. But there are people who can't believe that I'm contending that the Jim Crow order was finite or that it was defeated. And the reason that that's the case is, and this is what another anecdote that I'm sure this person will be tired of hearing. But in the fall of 2017, I think it was like I taught for the first time in a long time, a grad course on Black American political thought. And it was really more of a bibliography course than a research course. So the readings were massive. And one of the students who was first year and I guess probably first semester political theory student who hadn't been steeped in this kind of stuff, led discussion of very large, massive readings from like the mid-30s to the mid-40s with a bunch of prominent authors. And when she began her comments to lead the discussion, she said, well, the first thing that struck me was that of all these people, no one talked about the need to combat racism, but they were all focused on specific programs and policies to fight against and specific programs and policies to fight for. They all also understood that an indispensable key to improving the conditions of Black Americans was to pursue what you and I would call like a social democratic agenda. And that's been lost also. So one of the problems that I want to correct, or I'd like to do my little bit to correct, right? I'm not that arrogant, is this tendency to reduce politics or thinking about race purely to attitudes, right? I mean, Yes, you can see something that you can call racism, but racism doesn't do anything, right? It's people and institutions that do anything. And so that approach opens up to other totally unnecessary and useless debates like, is X action racist? Is X idea racist? Which isn't the point. So that's one of the larger objectives I had in mind with the book. And I'll say also that I think the narrative reflects... The sensibility that sort of drew me to the Frankfurt School in the early 70s. And it's the inclination in cellular domains to look for the work of the definitive features, like of the social order, whether like in mass culture or whatever. So my secret's out. That's what I was up to. So that nicely connects your conceptual work, your philosophical work, your
1: historical work to the question I now have, which is what the implication is about the kinds of policies or kinds of political actions we should pursue to overcome the injustices that obviously still structure the United States. So what do you think the implications are of being on the guard against race reductionism, recognizing that a fight against the absolute notion of racism isn't as important as a fight against the actual injustices structured across class and racial lines that we experience today? What does all of that mean for the kinds of political action that you would like listeners to this podcast to take?
0: Oh, good. So I published an article last summer in Nonsai called The Whole Country is the Reichstag. And the point of that article is and this connects with something else I've been saying for a while, based on reading and thinking not just about the US, but about the responses to what I think is a crisis in neoliberalism that's more global. And that is, I put it often in the form of a question what if we've gotten to a point where neoliberalism can no longer deliver enough to enough of the population? to maintain its legitimacy as a nominally democratic order. Well, then it seems like we may be at an intersection, that there are only two directions to go, and straight ahead isn't one of them. You know, the right is the right. It's like the real danger, I think, of authoritarian or fascist, I'm not going to quibble, takeover of one sort or another in the United States. I'm not going to quibble between the ballot box and push, and they often come together anyway. And the other direction is moving in something like a more social democratic, I mean, direction that connects public policy to satisfying working people's real needs. From that perspective, like the Biden administration's first year looked better than I'd hoped, right? I mean, knowing Biden, but it's kind of an interesting moment when on domestic policy, the left wing of the Biden administration is a condensed around Brian Dees and BlackRock. And on the foreign policy dimension, like the left wing of the administration seems to be John Mearsheimer. So things don't look great. But in that context, I want to make a plug because we've begun a podcast called The Class Matters Podcast. And we have two issues in the can and we're trying to work on the third one now. And its tagline is, what would the country look like if we were governed by and for the working class? And that's where I think the central focus of our politics needs to be. That's why I don't go to Brooklyn anymore, except to see my old friend Howard Levy from the anti-war movement, like who lives there. I mean, that's why I don't really have anything to do with the intellectual left or like any of that stuff. Because pressingly, but also, you know, when you take the foot off the throttle, like the most important thing for us to do is to try to build build a political movement, which has to be built from the ground up. I mean, I know Americans and especially younger ones really want shortcuts, but I don't think there's any way around rebuilding working-class-based left in this country of the sort that you and I grew up understanding what the left to be.
1: So as a final question, let me ventriloquate mm-hmm. a conservative response or pushback that you might get to these ideas. I mean, we've talked a lot about your differences with sort of a predominant strain of the left. And it goes back, I think, to that debate about the culture of poverty. I was really struck with a conversation I had with a conservative who said, look, when we talked about... Things like the culture of poverty in the 60s and 70s, this was portrayed as being racist or being a sort of coded set of attacks on black people. But what's actually happened is that, you know, the the dissolution of family structures and all of the other kinds of things that they're worried about first struck African-Americans. But a decade or two later struck white people. And actually uh, all of the kinds of concerns that we in quotation marks expressed about the evolution of black American culture uh, was simply the vanguard of what ended up happening in working class white communities in Appalachia, in the Middle West, in all kinds of places in the country. And they follow from that that actually a key way of fighting against that is in fact invocations of personal responsibility or forms of cultural reform, and so on. So what do you think is wrong about that story?
0: Okay, well, I'll say three things. First, when Jeff Bezos shows some personal responsibility, then I'll look for it from an unemployed mine worker. Uh, Second, I think conservatives who make that argument, and I've certainly heard it and read it too, are first of all being disingenuous about what they were doing in the 60s and 70s, especially considering that the economic policy regime that they Generated and endorsed, and that the corporate dam has followed, has led to increased immiseration among all sorts of working people. And there's nothing surprising about the fact that the putative behaviors, and so much of that is often fantasies of the interpreter's mind, right? That are just so stories that are extrapolated from census tract level data, right? But it shouldn't be a surprise that as immiseration spreads. That then these other problems are going to spread, right? And I'd say also that personal responsibility is not the answer. I go back to the Bezos comment, right? I mean, what should have been happening, it was certainly not the retreat of the social state over like the 80s and 90s, but as economic transition occurred, and it didn't just occur, like it was actively encouraged and supported by the state at all levels, then supports should have been built in to accommodate people's transitions. This is just one tiny instance. The labor movement in New Jersey, coming from the Industrial Union Council, which was the last vestige of a separate CIO body in AFL-CIO, but the Industrial Union Council in the 80s and early 90s crafted, you know, what they call the job destruction penalty law, which would have imposed a fine on every firm with a hundred or more employees that left its location, like in pursuit of cheaper wages or whatever, find them what a significant sum plus when you require that they pay a different sum per laid-off worker to the community to like defray the cost of dislocation. Pursuit of that kind of industrial policy, right, at the federal level would amount to altering the market incentives, right? That the people who were into market incentives like to talk about. So I mean this is the kind of social democratic approach that could have been taken, that should have been taken to fighting poverty in the first place. So I think as in so many other domains, I think the right's is full of shit right in that argument. Well, on that uh, concise note, <laughs> uh, thanks so for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Thank
1: you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.